Howdy folks, AJ here with Pindrop World News. Just a brief intro before we get into this bonus content episode. The conversation that you're about to hear discusses the October Polish parliamentary elections, and it takes place between myself, my co-producer, Nicholas Castillo, and Dr. Julian Waller. Professor Waller is a professional lecturer in political science at George Washington University, lecturing on contemporary Russian politics. His research focuses on a variety of related issues, such as the comparative politics of Russia and the post-Soviet region, military and strategic studies, comparative authoritarianism, and illiberal politics and dynamics. In addition to lecturing, Professor Waller is a non-resident fellow at the Illiberalism Studies Program at the Elliott School of International Affairs and an associate research analyst in the Russia Studies Program at the Center for Naval Analyses, a federally funded research and development center specializing in national security and political military analysis. His work has appeared in a variety of publications and in peer-reviewed journals, including the Journal of International Affairs, Political Studies Review, Problems of Post-Communism, the Journal of Illiberalism Studies, Social Media and Society, and the International Journal of Constitutional Law. Alrighty, enjoy the show. Professor Waller, welcome and thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, I'd like to start off with a discussion of the uh, immediate results of the election. Uh, for the sake of our listeners, on October 15th, there were national elections in Poland. The result is that the opposition parties will likely be able to form a government and oust the long-sitting Law and Justice Party. Um, the results of the election with 70% turnout were 157 seats awarded to Donald Tusk's Civil Coalition Party, 26 to the Left Party, and 65 to the Third Way Party. Now, the Law and Justice Party itself received 194 seats, making it the largest in the parliament. But given that the three opposition parties have pledged to back a unity government together, the most likely uh, option in the coming days and weeks is the formation of, of a new government in Poland. Uh, just to get straight into it, uh, Professor Waller, what's your read of the election? What do you think was the driving force behind the opposition victory? Well, thanks for having me on. Um, the election was widely watched uh, in the scholarly community, first policymaking community. The EU was very interested in it as well. Uh, we'll probably talk a little bit later about exactly why that's the case, but Poland has been on many people's minds. Um, when we think about uh, Eastern European politics, when we think about politics in modern democracies, as well as questions associated with the Russo-Ukrainian war as well. In terms of the election itself, uh, the op as you said, as you said, the opposition won notably, but we have to be a little bit careful about it because it was a rather diffuse victory. Uh, a very, very clear majority if we add up all the seats across three coalitions of parties, uh, right? So each each one of the opposition victory uh, victorious groups are actually coalitions of multiple parties. Uh, so we have a rather large and complicated same that's going to be formed. Uh, eventually. Uh, one reason for the success, of course, is that the opposition ran uh, a good campaign. Um, we don't have to put everything in existential terms. We can also understand Poland as a, a product of an electoral democracy in which uh, parties do actually compete uh, on uh, values and policies and issues and personalities. And the opposition happened to uh, have the better. And it also happened to be able to push against uh, fatigue. Uh, incumbency fatigue of peace. Um, so that's that's part of it. The opposition ran a good campaign. It was coordinated, well coordinated, uh, and focused on a few key issues. Key issues regarding 
discontent and disagreement with peace, uh, law and justice, uh, the, the previous ruling party, uh, one of the primary uh, opposition components was, in fact, discontented former allies of law and justice. That's the th sort of third way contingent, which uh, combined an agrarian element with sort of a kind of a personalist vehicle, uh, both of which represented more conservative voters, a more conservative policy platform, and had previously been at least partially aligned uh, with the ruling party in previous iterations. Uh, with that primary defection, it enabled a broader coalition to be formed. Uh, additionally, uh, you mentioned the left party as well, which did not actually do very well in this election. It's part of the coalition. It, 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 it decreased its seats. Uh, as a result, you have a very, very uh, wide band of opinion um, formed across this uh, governing coalition to be, which is a great benefit in a proportional representation electoral system. So that, again, helped the opposition win. You're spreading across a tremendous amount of different political values, uh, different demographic groups, regional groups, and so on. Uh, and it's just going to be a bit more challenging when we get to forming the government. Yeah, that I, there's been so much excitement in the West about these results. Um, but at the same time, I, you know, in doing my reading for this episode, I came across a piece in uh, Foreign Policy by Yaroslav Kutsa and Karolina Wigura, names of which I'm both, I'm sure I'm pronouncing terribly. Um, but the, the point they make in their piece in foreign policy is that there's actually quite a tall order for this coalition, right? Not only in terms of internal cohesion, but also working within a government that for eight years has really sort of been set up and staffed by, um, by peace uh, loyalists. Do you foresee that being a big problem for, for this incoming government? Yes, it's going to be a big problem in a, across a variety of dimensions. And that's that's actually part of the issue is that Western observers are really keyed into sort of macro level issues in the election. So regarding democracy and uh, law and justices, uh, institutional aggression uh, regarding, let's say, uh, the judicial system um, and other elements of uh, Polish political institutions uh, and the government support of them, uh, the media apparatus as well. And so there's all this this stuff at the macro level, at the the, 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 the bigger picture that Western scholars are interested in, many Polish opposition-oriented uh, academics are also interested, big, big ticket items. The problem is, is that many voters don't care about those sorts of things. They voted against peace for different reasons, uh, or they were always going to vote against law and justice, right? So like the left, for example, doesn't, may or may not care about all of these various democracy level issues, but you're still going to vote for a left party, right? Um, or if you're in the more conservative agrarian anti-peace uh, element of the coalition, maybe you care about the democracy side of things. Maybe you care about other stuff. Maybe you care about corruption, any corruption, or you care about uh, scandals that have sort of beset the government. So again, we have to keep keep all that in mind because there's lots of reasons why it's going to be complicated. I talked a bit about the just the mechanical nature of the coalition being very, very unwieldy in principle. Uh, there's something that uh, we also often forget uh, when we talk about Polish politics, is that Donald Tusk, who is essentially the likely prime minister designate, likely the formature uh, of the governing coalition after the president asks peace to form a government and fails, Donald Tusk is, has a very, very strong reputation in Poland in a divisive manner. Many people do not like him. Many people in the opposition do not like him. Um, and for a variety of reasons, some of which are just sort of his brand. Uh, some of it is his previous experience as prime minister. 
Uh, some of it is the way peace has always framed him as being especially pro-German. Um, and some of it's just his personality, uh, which is, again, very, very strong. So there's a reason why he's popular. There's a reason why he's also unpopular. That's going to cause complications because his party did not win fully outright relative to the, his other coalition partners. And then you have what you were referring to and alluding to before, which is the institutional changes that people are really interested in seeing. They really want to see a change to the uh, state media, uh, the state broadcaster, right? Uh, they want to see a change towards how the government subsidizes regional newspapers. They want to see uh, a very complicated sort of solution, potentially like a illustration effort against law and justice appointed judges and the Judicial Council that, again, sort of appoints the judges and oversees them. Uh, all of that is going to be tremendously tricky, even if... Even if you agree with every every single aspect of it, there needs to be a, a root and branch change to all elements of the of the government, uh, all of the institutional uh, mechanisms that peace touched over the last several years um, since they first uh, came into office. Uh, all of those are tricky unto themselves, and then given a disparate coalition, that's going to be very very generally troublesome. <laughs> Professor Waller, I, I want to. You mentioned Donald Tusk, the presumptive next prime minister. Um, look, he's been in a lot of leadership positions before, president of the European Council, so forth and so forth. But as you mentioned, he has a lot of controversies around him. I want to get your thoughts specifically on the investigation that, as of now, is still ongoing into him. Of course, Tusk himself said that it was launched with influence from the Kremlin. Uh, it happened to be launched the same year there was an election. A lot of suspicion could be alleged there. But the allegations are that he forced an investigation of a Polish businessman and his company for importing Russian coal. That uh, businessman ended up getting jail time. From your perspective, do these appear to be completely trumped up charges or does there appear to be an element of potential uh, legal justification in this investigation? It's a tricky question in part because we're not privy to all the facts. Um, and again, that's what a legal investigation is supposed to uncover. Um, it's also uh, difficult due to the highly polarized nature of Polish politics and also reporting on Polish politics. Um, I think it's probably fair to say if you're going to take, let's say, let's say an outside observer approach um, and, uh, like as Americans or as someone in the West who's not Polish, tries to be a little bit distant from it, um, it's very difficult to just assume that uh, either Donald Tusk or uh, overall the PO, which is his primary party, which once uh, ruled Poland prior to peace, uh, are squeaky clean on a variety of issues. This is, it's very unlikely that that's the case. Um, and traditionally, uh, the PO has been accused of being uh, very, very close to Germany and generally close to Russia, relatively speaking. Now, that was a number of years ago. So part of the problem with the current accusations surrounding this whole issue around Donald Tusk and others uh, related to Russia is that it's, it's, it's a long time ago. In many ways, it's a completely ge different geopolitical environment. So uh, regardless of whether or not uh, he or someone close to him uh, is perhaps guilty of these charges, this is in a very, very different environment. Um, such that it would be unfair to then target him and say, oh, you're a pro-Russian today, right? Which is kind of the implication. 
Um, that's prob- that's not where we want to be uh, necessarily. That 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 doesn't really fit. I mean, one could say that the Democratic Party of the United States was pro-Russian, given the Obama reset uh, happening over ten years ago. Right? That's not a super useful claim to be made. It's that's more partisan points than it is actually helping us understand sort of the here and the now. Um, so we should understand at least some of the chatter on that investigation to be politically motivated and attempt to tag. At the same time, it's probably, if we're interested in the actual reality surrounding it, it's probably not worth throwing out per se. Um, there's likely at least something there. Um, kind of a complicated answer. Right. Uh, one problem with the way that we tend to talk about Polish politics in the West is we get involved in the political sides um, quite easily. And when you read reporting from the New York Times or the Washington Post or like The Economist or something like that, you can kind of forget that, you know, you're not Polish, actually. And the, they, they have their own internal complicated politics that it's not always tremendously useful to just pick a partisan side and be pro. Um, you, that might be beneficial to you. That's fine. Um, but oftentimes you end up missing quite a lot and then you end up being blindsided by the fact that uh, Polish politics is not the cleanest in the world, for example. I, I, I want to touch on that a little more and get a little more into Polish domestic politics. Um, you, you referenced a little while ago how divisive and polarized Polish politics are, but you're also talking about the fact that in the West, we can sort of impose our own ideas onto what's really going on in Poland. I want to bring that into the case of, of what gets sort of described as like Poland A and Poland B quite often which is to say like the Western portion of Poland historically under German or Austro-Hungarian um, occupation versus the Eastern side of Poland historically uh, within the Tsarist Empire. And a lot is made of this and there are facts on the ground that sort of speak this, right? If you look at voting maps, including the most recent one, you see that uh, PSI or PIS, sorry, is uh, more popular in Poland B, the Eastern portion of the country, um, than in uh, Poland A, you know, the Western portion of the country. Um, so you hear this constantly and it seems like there's a lot on the ground that sort of speaks to this. Um, my issue with it, though, however, is that this is also very similar to what we used to hear about Ukraine. There are two Ukraines, the more Western-influenced you know, one and the more Eastern-influenced one. And sure, there, there, again, there are facts on the ground that might speak to that. But then when you get to things like reactions to the invasion, reactions to the, the, the war in 2014 and 2023, we see that these lines aren't as um, stuck in place as we once thought. So I, I sort of want to get your reaction to that. Well, do you think the Poland A, Poland B narrative is, is solid and going to stick with us for a long time? Um, do you think that means that PIS is going to continue to be like a really major force in Polish politics because they have a, a base of support in Poland? B? H- how do you how do you sort of think about that narrative of Polish politics? So there's a couple elements there, uh, and we'll we'll take them in turn. So the, the first aspect, which is this really extraordinary geo, uh, let's say, uh, geographic note that people see in in Polish electoral maps of a very clear divide, which often maps onto. Uh, prior boundaries of polities, right? Imperial boundaries from a hundred years ago or more. Um, that narrative is never not going to go away anytime soon. Uh, it, it, and the reason why is that it's at least partially prima facie true, right? That like there are in fact old lines on the map resultant from very different polities and the experience from very different polities that keep showing up. So something's happening there. Now, the narrative that it's just a Poland A, Poland B, uh, that doesn't really work, and we we know that because once we get once we dig down into slightly smaller uh, boundary lines, you start seeing cities pop up, right? In the way that in the United States you have the red states and blue states, but in fact most 
cities are blue and most suburban and rural countryside is red, right? So you, you have a macro level political geography, but you zoom in just a little bit, it starts getting more speckled, right? And so you're really looking at um, uh, tendencies, right? Um, rather than extreme geographies. Um, in the Polish case, one of the reasons why it's actually a little bit complicated, you have the, the Poland A, Poland B, the, the West, the West being under German occupation, uh, or Imperial Germany in the in the previous uh, years, the East Russian Empire, is there's also demographic transfer that explains quite a bit of it, right? So when, after World War II, the borders of Poland changed, populations were moved. Um, and so ethnic Germans were expelled in an ethnic cleansing that the West and the Soviet Union decided was just going to happen. Uh, and then they were resettled by ethnic Poles. And those are often strongholds of uh, PO, right, of Donald Tusk's party and so on. Now, is the argument that they've been treated with the imperial German past, or is the argument that these were people who were uprooted from their traditional ways of life, brought into urban environments constructed post-war, uh, treated with different uh, industrial investments from communist Poland, for example, or different educational uh, structures? Uh, and again, different traditional establishments, weaker traditional religion, because again, you've been uprooted from your parish, uh, and that that has a downstream impact. I'm suggesting this because there's likely some causal uh, relevance there. Um, that doesn't mean that the political geography isn't extant, but it does mean that it's it's coming from perhaps a, a, a different different forms and different sources. Um, the same goes for uh, trying to extrapolate out policy positions. Uh, so, for example, uh, peace is considered this very illiberal party. It's very anti-German. It doesn't play nice with our understandings of how Western politics should go, especially in places like Brussels or Washington, D.C. It's also the most anti-Russian party, and it's sort of the perfect party for a very strong anti-Russian line given the Russo-Ukrainian war. It's also the most anti-Ukrainian party. Uh, and how do you square that circle, right? And then the fact of the matter is they have squared it because it's a real par party existing in real life. It's not an abstraction uh, where we're just kind of Reddit playing around and we can talk about, oh, well, they're the anti-Russian party and then they're, uh, but they're the anti-Ukrainian party, therefore they're going to act this way. Well, they actually act in accordance with the broader international environment, uh, being under the general uh, hegemony of the United States and having their own interests. And so Poland ends up being a very, very strong ally. Uh, a similar illiberal party in Hungary uh, ends up barely helping out at all uh, in the, in the Russo-Ukrainian war. So we, we want to be careful about determinism, right? Uh, it's a lot more complicated with that. And that kind of gets to the sec your second point about uh, where is peace going? Um, there is going to be a statist conservative party in Poland. Uh, it's going to look something like peace. Whether it is peace, whether it is law and justice in five years, it's unclear. There's lots of recriminations inside that party right now. Uh, its demographic base is potentially shrinking based on the exit poll data, right? It's a, a much older demographic. It's aging out. Um, younger right-wing voters uh, are coordinating on a more libertarian uh, variant, the, the uh, Confederatia. A party which did surprisingly poorly, but you still see um, sort of pretty clear signs on that. Um, but again, there, there, there's complications. How long does Third Way, the opposition agrarian slash populist 
uh, political vehicle, uh, stay in coalition with, uh, with PO and with KO, I guess. Um, and at what point do they start defecting to either back to peace or for something else? We, we, we don't quite know. But there's a very large demographic segment that's going to be open to whatever law and justice will be. And it might, it might split up into two parties. It, there could, there's, there, there are all, excuse me, there are already moderate and more radical or more, more conservative wings of law and justice that's sort of been long, long established. Um, and at a certain point, uh, Kaczynski, who is sort of the, the, the background figure in law and justice, isn't going to be there. Um, and there might be power plays resultant from that. So we should, we should, we should be, we should assume that it's going to stick around, but in fact, given the fairly open nature of the Polish party system, there is a chance for a party change or party, a party split. Um, we'll sort of see. But the demographic conditions are still there, and there, there is certainly this, this background element. Um, to the, I'm kind of going in a circle on this one, but back to the Poland A, Poland B aspect, a major point of interest uh, certainly in the West, but also in, 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 in Poland, uh, when we think about the nature and fundamentals of Polish politics is the urban-rural divide. Um, and that's associated as well with other things. Like, you know, the youth are more concentrated in urban areas. They're more likely to be secular. Uh, they're more likely to vote for more leftist parties, relatively speaking. They have different policy views, older people, more in rural areas. Uh, that's all true. But Poland is actually one of the more rural countries in, in, in Europe in terms of many, many people still live in small towns and small cities in the relative countryside. Uh, it's much less uh, he uh, concentrated than just a few major cities in the way that other states are, uh, such as France, for example. Um, so as a result, there is a, still a strong backbone of a distinct way of life. It's no, We're not talking about sort of a nostalgic, idyllic, like people with threshers and sighs in the countryside picking apples or or the opposite like some sort of unconscionable stereotype about you know drunks and whatever in the small village like it's obviously more complicated than that uh and uh, either way is unkind to understand but uh uh suffice to say that the socioeconomic conditions are uh perhaps a little bit less clear in terms of exactly how this will play out in the next 10 years uh, Professor Waller, I think with our time constraints, it would be a good time to move on to that international X aspect we've been alluding to, particularly with regard to the EU. It, it seems to me for years now, the English-speaking media, um, non-Polish media has kind of built the idea that Tusk would become elected at some point as a cure-all for Polish-EU relations. I, I have sort of a two-pronged question. One, do you think that's the case, or does it oversimplify the amount of work that this new governing coalition has ahead of them? And two, what are the implications of this for EU relations with Hungary, since Poland has largely been the EU buddy backing Hungary up when EU's tried to crack down on what they call rule of law issues or liberalism issues? Absolutely. I mean, you've already partially answered your own question in the sense that one, at the meta level, it is, he's absolutely been discussed as sort of a cure, cure all figure. Uh, and two, that it's going to be more complicated. Um, I think in, in the, the short term, it's going to make things with the EU a lot smoother because, quite frankly, the EU has been putting its thumb on the scales in Polish politics for some time. Now, it has normative justifications for that. We can talk about those, right? Like defending democracy, rule of law issues, all these sorts of things. That's fine. Uh, and if you're a Pole, you might accept that. You might even welcome it. Um, 
But the EU has not been neutral in Polish politics. And so we should expect, for example, that the EU is very likely to ease up its varieties of budget constraints uh, on Poland uh, fairly soon. Uh, there's a you know, maybe a 20% chance that they stay very harsh until they get some uh, real reforms and it's all sort of done by the book. It's much more likely that they're going to ease up as fast as they can uh, as sort of a carrot to once a new government is formed and also to show good progress, right? Make it easier. Uh, one reason why this money matters is because uh, it's going to make the any future budget calculations easier. When you have billions of EU funds sort of rolling in, that's very helpful. Tens of billions. I think the withhold in the withhold uh, withheld money is something thirty six billion euro at the moment. That's right, and they actually they actually gave some to the current government uh, finally, or or allowed it to be dispersed in part because the U.S. was starting to poke a bit, right? Because Poland is such a strong ally vis a vis the Ukraine situation. Um, so that was a there was there was allowed a little bit of a dispensation relative to Hungary, which has not received its disbursements uh and it's still waiting on covid funds right um so that's one 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 element we should expect much easier relations with the eu there we should also expect lots of sort of symbolic meetings meetings with ursula von der leyen meetings with the german chancellor meetings with emmanuel macron all the big the big players of eu politics they they're going to be shown laughing and agreeing to various things that were, were had not been agreed to before uh, it, it doesn't mean it's not genuine. It is genuine, but it's also there's also going to be very very strong effort to help help however possible, uh, and be, and because there has been such a through line of um, Tusk and the this broader coalition are the good guys. We want them to succeed. Peace is a bad guy, uh, a bad guy party. We don't like them. Uh, we think they're undermining democracy. All these sorts of things. So we should expect that from the on the EU side. Um, in terms of the broader international, or well, rather in terms of the view regarding Hungary, uh, it's uh, very fortunate for Hungary that they have, uh, Orban has a bit of a consolation prize in uh, Slovakia. Uh, Slovakia uh, has Robert Fico as the once and future PM. Um, and he is also in this sort of illiberal cast of characters, a bit of a, you know, black sheep in the EU family. Uh, so he'll still be able to have meetings and show that he's not alone, um, vis-a-vis uh, -vis Brussels, uh, and the, the, the broader sort of, let's say, liberal establishment of the EU itself. Um, Poland is going to make, I'd be surprised, I'd, I'd be actually very interested to see how um, the new Polish government will play this, frankly, because they could they could really try to thumb nose thumb the nose of of Hungary. Um, that may or may not backfire. It, it kind of depends on what their own internal calculations are, and and the fact that because we live in the real world, they will have to deal with the Hungarian government for the rest of their time in government. So there there are reasons to not want to just cause trouble and make fun of people, right? But we'll see. I would be surprised if we didn't get a little some of that. Uh, not having Poland, because Poland is a much more important country than Slovakia is, um, not having Poland uh, on the side of Hungary for, let's say, various EU votes is, is very meaningful. Um, and we should expect, again, uh, that a core of EU states bring up issues that have been foreclosed. 
uh, in part because of the sort of the, the de facto Hungarian-Polish alliance. Wouldn't be surprised if there's another round of talks on migration that align in the way Brussels would like it to be, as opposed to the way Poland and Hungary had wanted it to be. Um, but we'll see. There's going to be some hard issue areas. For example, the, the continued issue of grain is going to be a major concern. Um, the EU would like to pretend that it doesn't exist. Um, but there's a broader coalition in Eastern Europe that's very, very displeased about the Ukrainian grain dumping. So it's not just Poland. It's not just Hungary. It's also Bulgaria. It's Slovakia. Um, remember, the assumed new Polish government, majority government, has an agrarian political party inside it. That's if they were to pull votes um, on the uh, because of the grain issue, that would be disastrous, right? So there's going to be a lot of delicate balancing. Um, and it's again going to make this much much more difficult. But uh, I would I, I would say that we should we should see a little fire in terms of the rule of law stuff because that's something that Donald Tusk is personally very interested in. He's fully in that framework, that EU framework of you know Poland and Hungary are in violation of a variety of core tenets of the European Union, institutional ones, and so expect some very interesting uh, meetings uh, over the coming year on that guy. Uh, Professor Waller, we know that you have to run now, so we'll we'll let you leave. But uh, thank you so much for all of your comments, and uh, have a wonderful evening. Absolutely, thank you very much for having me on, and I'd be very happy to chat more in the future. Thank you.